Welcome to the Jimmy Neville Podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Alan Berger, a popular public speaker, author, and nationally recognized expert on the science of addiction and recovery. My relationship with Dr. Berger began in 2016 when I was in a jail cell serving a six-month sentence. One day, while looking at the bookshelf in the pod, I found a book called 12 Stupid Things That Mess Up Recovery by Dr. Alan Berger. I read the book and things started clicking for me. For the first time in my life, 12-step recovery made sense. This was the beginning of my journey in recovery, which has now been going on for over seven years. When I decided that I wanted to create a podcast, I knew that I wanted Dr. Berger to be my first guest. In this podcast, prepare to learn the reasons why some people have a problem with 12-step recovery and why their assumptions may be invalid, if there is a best path for recovery or if it depends on the individual, how perfectionism helps people and hurts people, how to balance individuality with relationships, along with many other interesting topics about addiction and recovery. Let's get right into it. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jimmy. It's uh, great to be here with you. It's 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 really a it's really a treat. I mean, especially given the history of our relationship. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited to get get into some of these questions and, and dig in your brain a little bit here. But um, yeah, the first thing I want to ask is just can you tell us about yourself and how you got involved with psychotherapy and like you know what exactly psychotherapy is. Yes. So my journey in recovery started almost 52 years ago now. So I'm a Vietnam vet. I joined the Marine Corps when I was 17 years old. And I joined the Marine Corps actually to try to solve my problem with alcohol as a teenager. I was a teenage alcoholic. I had blackout. I was a blackout drinker. I had blackouts many times per week. Um, Drinking interfered with going to school. I dropped out of school when I was 16. So my life was going nowhere. So I knew I needed to do something to change. So I thought the Marine Corps might be a good idea. My my father was in the Army, and he was a Bronze Star recipient in World War II. So we had kind of a tradition in my family to go into the service. I don't know why I picked the Marines, because I wasn't a very good swimmer. So I don't know what the heck I was thinking going into a group that's an amphibious assault group. So... But anyway, I went in, and a few of the proud the Marines, right? It was that kind of thing. And, um, you know, I got sober in boot camp, but, you know, as soon as we started to go on um, leave on the weekends, my drinking picked up right at right where it left off. I was still blackout drinking and stuff like that. And through, um, I volunteered for Vietnam when I turned 18. I was um, in Vietnam for 11 months. While I was there, I experimented with drugs other than alcohol, and I became an addict. I mean, anything that would create a sense of personal freedom, I was addicted to. And um, through some, today I think of it as more synchronicity than serendipity, but either explanation works. I ended up becoming the third Marine getting help in what was called the drug exemption program. So instead of discharging us from the Marine Corps because we had a problem, first throwing us in the brig because up to that point in time, there was a zero tolerance for drug problems in the Marine Corps. Um, 
I ended up being the third Marine admitted into this program the third day the program existed. And they had no idea what they were doing, but they knew it. And they turned to the recovery community outside the Marine Corps base. I was, my last duty station was at the Kaneohe Marine Corps Air Station on the island of Oahu. And outside the base was the city of Kailua. And there just happened to be a group of young people that were, you know, practicing this, this, you know, way of life. And so one of those young people was invited to come on base on Tuesday nights and do a recovery rap session. So the, you know, he comes out on Tuesday. Um, now you got to picture this. There was about 20 of us Marines in our combat fatigue standing around. We had just come back from Vietnam and this hippie walks in, right? This Hawaiian hippie. You know, he's got his hair pulled back in a ponytail. He's got wire rim glasses on. He's got his Birkenstocks on, his khaki shorts, his wine print shirt. And it, I was very skeptical. What does this guy have to say to me? This guy was protesting where I'm out and fighting it. You know, I, I was quite judgmental at the time. But after five minutes, Jimmy, I was blown away. This guy, the first time I experienced another human being being so authentic and real and honest and free. You know, I tell everyone, when I took my first drink, what, what happened to me was I experienced this sense of personal freedom. The, the feelings of inadequacy, insecurity I had, the terrible grief I had about my father's death when I was 11 and he was 39. I didn't know how to cope with any of that stuff. And when I drank, it didn't matter. I was okay being who I was. But that's the only way I knew how to get to okay. And so, you know, for me, it was the, the thing that we hear all the time in terms of a, what addiction. If, if one is great, more is going to be better. And I was off and running, man. I mean, I was off and running. Anything that would give me that personal freedom I was into. I was addicted to anything that would create that sense of being okay. But it was all temporary, as you know. You know, I was still left when I got sobered. I was still left, you know, like the Charlie Brown um, cartoon that I love is Lucy's got a psychiatric stand and her little sign up, psychiatry for five cents. And Charlie comes up and says, Lucy, I figured out the solution to my problem. She goes, what's that, Charlie Brown? I got a ticket. I'm going to St. Louis, Missouri. And Lucy, and the only way that Lucy can look at Charlie Brown says, the only problem with that, Charlie Brown, is you're still going to be Charlie Brown. <laughs> and that was my experience, Jimmy. I was still Charlie Brown, right? I mean, I was still Alan Berger that didn't know how to deal with any of these things. And when Tom came that night, it was the first time I met a person who was dealing with life on life's terms and being okay with it. And I was really, really, I was very excited. I was turned on. I had the same experience that I had when I drank the first time. My, my sense was that if I could somehow achieve what Tom has in his life, I think I could be okay. And that sent me off on my journey, man. I got turned on to recovery. I had about 60 days clean and sober. They didn't have any counselors. They say, hey, Berger, you want to be a counselor? So that beats pushing around a 105 millimeter howitzer, right? So I went ahead and became a counselor and I fell in love with helping people and being a counselor and decided at that point in time 
that I wanted to go back to school. And I started taking classes at Chaminade College in Honolulu, and I fell in love with education. And that sent me off in the direction of becoming a clinical psychologist. And so this high school dropout in 1987 graduated from UC Davis with a PhD in clinical psychology. Um, so, you know, you said, well, what is psychotherapy? Well, the truth is, is that there are so many different systems of psychotherapy and different ways that people that are practicing psychotherapy approach helping people. Um, I was attracted to and was trained in what's called gestalt therapy. It was part of the third wave in psychology, the first two waves being psychoanalysis behaviorism. The third wave, this humanistic psychology, was based on challenging a lot of what people felt were too, that psychoanalysis was too deterministic. It painted people in, in a dark way. Instead of seeing the best in people, it saw the worst in them. And, and humanistic psychology was really about the idea that it's what's right about us that we ignore that causes us problems, not what's wrong about us. And my God, I love that approach. I mean, it spoke to what I was learning in my recovery in AA. I think Bill Wilson was a humanist. I mean, I really did. He, you know, the way he talks and writes about people and stuff, he has a lot of faith in our, our potential to, to become what we can be. You know, and look, that's what step six and seven in the 12-step program is all about. It's pivoting towards our best possible attitude, towards ourselves, towards life, towards our relationships with others, right? Towards our problems. So that's what happened, man. I started off, I got some great training. I've been very fortunate in my career. So in essence, what, what Gestalt therapy is about, and for me, it goes hand in glove with recovery. It's about starting with right here, right now. It's looking at, you know, when people come to see me, I say to them, what do you want to change about yourself today? You know, what's the biggest thing you want to change about yourself? We start with what's going on right now. Doesn't mean that, that I ignore a person's past. That would be foolish. Our past shapes us. But all of our past is engraved in how we're functioning in this moment. And I've become very good at seeing what we're doing now and understanding what that means about our past. But, you know, the other belief we have, it's what you do right now that's going to change your life. And so it's very much focused on the way I describe it. And I describe recovery as the discovery of new possibilities, new possibilities in our relationship with ourselves, with how we deal with problems, with our relationships with others and with life itself. So that's, that's the approach I have. It's very experiential. I don't do a lot of talking about with people. I get them to have experiences, new experiences, because I believe an experience is an unbelievable way of creating change in our life, and especially when these experiences can be meaningful and personal and stuff like that. So that gives you a little sense, Jimmy, in terms of this 52-year journey now, and a 52-year-old journey that I've been on. Yeah, there's there's so much to unpack there. Um, one thing I want to ask, like you mentioned right there at the end about um, giving people experiences because those are what sticks and helps people change. Can you think of like a good example of an experience that someone has yeah, had? Yeah, I can think of. A, I can. I can. Yeah, I can think of a real good example. Um, 
So let's say somebody comes to me and says, you know, I, I've just relapsed. Um, and I don't know what, you know, what's going on. I've been working a pretty good program. I'm not so sure exactly what happened and, and what went on. So one of the things in Gestalt therapy that we believe is that we are, early on in our life, we became fragmented into all these different self-parts. So instead of being a unified whole and being able to operate from that, there's, there's different parts of us. So as you know, and my experience is, is when my addiction developed, there, a whole part of me became an addict self. And it was just focused on one thing, wanting to get high. It did, I did, that part of me didn't care about anything else. So if somebody came to me and said, I've, I've relapsed and, and I want to I wanna understand it better, and I, I, I want to make sure that I prevent a relapse in the future, what I have them do is I have them actually do some what we call empty chair work, where they take their addict self and put it in a chair and then have a dialogue between their healthy self or their recovery self and their addict self and to look at what kind of relationship they have. See, the, the way that we define mental health is that it's an appropriate balance and coordination of all of what we are. So when we think of balance, it means is the part of me the healthy part of me in charge, or is the part of me that's my addict self in charge? Well, if my addict self is in charge, I got the wrong part of me driving the bus. I mean, we're going to have a, it's going to be Toad's Wild Ride at Disneyland, right? I mean, it's going to be crazy time, man. I'm going to be crashing into other cars, running red lights, I mean, disobeying all the laws, I mean, and ending up either dead or in jail or, you know, miserable. In yeah, terms of my life, so decisions. when I yeah. that's right. So when I get them into the dialogue with themselves, they're able to become aware of how they, what goes on between their healthy part of them and this other part of them that isn't. And I'll tell you, you know, it it falls into a pretty similar pattern I've seen in most people. We end up dealing with these parts of us very passively. We feel like we're a victim. Oh, my addict self told me to use, and it takes me off, and why do you do this to me, and stuff like that, right? It's like we, we act like we have no power, and it's because we don't, because we've given all the power to that part of ourselves. So in experiential therapy, first we become aware of how we've, you know, totally projected our power into this other part of us, and then we start experimenting with taking it back. I make people aware that they've become a victim, and I say, you know, I'm your victim, and after they say that a while, I say, I don't like being a victim of this part of me. I say, all right, so tell that to the other part, and now they start to take back some of their power. You know, it's a paradox, right? You see it in the program, and I see it. First step, we admit it, we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable. As soon as I admit I'm powerless, now I have the possibility of now discovering a new power. As soon as I admit that I've made my life unmanageable, I've got a chance at learning how to manage my life better. Yeah, that's an interesting um, experiment. Where, because what it made me think of is I've heard people say, uh, if if you were if you're struggling, you know, pretend like pretend like someone you deeply care about is struggling, like your little sister, little brother. And what would you say to there them? You. 
and it kind of reminds me of, of the, um, of what you were just explaining about sitting someone down and, um, yes. having them talk to that person. Well, that, that's another experiential intervention, isn't it? You could do it that way as well, right? If, yeah. if that little, if that was a part of you, what would you say to that part? And look, you know, let's say somebody's a perfectionist. It's the same thing. How are you dealing with the perfectionist side of you? We're all perfectionists. That's not the problem. It's when we let that part of us run the show. That's when we become, and then when we let that part of us run the show, there's another part that usually follows, which is, you know, the part of us that beats us up for not being perfect. Yeah. So it becomes a vicious cycle, man, a real vicious cycle. There's a type of therapy, um, integrating parts, integration by parts. Is, is, is this something that you're familiar with? I forget the name of it. Yeah, it's called Internal Family Systems. Yeah, it's Internal IFS, Family yeah. Systems. Yeah, IFS. Yeah. And so Schwartz and um, there's one other person that um, are practitioners of this. Um, they took, you know, he even talked about it. I mean, in his work, he started with eating disorder clients and seeing it. And a lot of his ideas grew out of Gestalt therapy. He took it off on his particular direction he doesn't do chair work he he said that that didn't make a lot of you know he got lost in it or that he couldn't see he, the client he felt the clients got lost i haven't had that experience but he then interviews parts so he does similar work but instead of getting them to change chairs he'll have them assume that role and they'll talk he'll talk to that person directly yeah i actually tried that type of therapy at one point and I had a very difficult time with it. She would, you know, tell me, tell me, you know, yeah. you know, close your eyes and um, ask this part how it's doing. Yeah. And I guess my logical brain yeah. just had a very, very difficult time with that. But I could see, you yeah. know, hearing her explain it and hearing people talk about it, I could see how useful that it would be. Um, being able to identify well, those different it parts. Would have been and interesting. Instead of her doing that in your imagination, if she would have had you do it with chairs, it might have been easier for you. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Okay, so this might be a little bit of a controversial <laughs> question about just recovery in general. Um, do you think that there is a overall best solution or do you think that there's a different path for different people? You know, earlier on in my career, I would say that there's just one path and, you, you know, I was very rigid and immature. I don't believe that anymore. I still believe that Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, Cocaine Anonymous, it's, it is the gold standard. Most people, it has helped more people than any other approach to addiction and, and alcoholism that has ever been put forth by professionals or non-professionals. So it's still for me the gold standard. But it doesn't mean it works for everyone. There's smart recovery right now that's real popular and it's growing in attendance. Nowhere near the popularity that AA has, but people are finding a value. There's, um, there's rational recovery is another approach, which is it's, 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 uh, it's, it's developed by this um, Trumpy, I think his name is. And he, he wrote the little book instead of the big book, he called it. It was funny. Yeah. He called it the little book. And, you know, but he talks about it. A lot of his work is this self-part work. And he deals with the what he calls 
the addict self or the alcoholic voice in you and stuff like that, learning how to deal with it. I think that's a legitimate approach. I had a few patients that didn't do well. One patient in particular that didn't do well, he was an attorney and AA was, for him, it was too too vague and he went to Rational Recovery and got the book and it turned his whole life around. So I've seen that. Celebrate Recovery in the Christian community now. It's grown in popularity. It's kind of taken the 12 steps and now putting Jesus into the into the mix of the steps, and that's been helping a lot of people. I've seen people get well on just going to therapy. Some people get well going back to church. I mean, there's a lot of different paths. Here's the thing that I think is most important, and, and I think you'd probably agree with this, Jimmy. Our drinking was but a symptom, and, and anybody that knows anything about this. Now, what was it a symptom of? Well, I think it was a symptom of that we did not know how to deal with life and that this was an attempt to find a solution to all the things that we didn't know how to address. And so when we put the plug in the jug, we've got a lot of work to do. It doesn't end there. Now, there's a lot of benefit that comes from not drinking and using. I'm not saying that there isn't. There's a tremendous benefit that comes. But now, we are faced with how do we deal with the mountain of living, this is what Ernie Larson called, the mountain of living and the problems in living that we haven't known how to deal with. And so I believe no matter what you do to get well, you need to address what I would call your emotional sobriety. And I think that that's now trying to understand how to best cope with life on life's terms. What I say, Jimmy, is that we need to convert a consciousness that used to say, I'm okay if, into a consciousness that says, I'm okay even if. And if we can do that, then we can experience a profound personal freedom in this world. And we're going to be okay. We're never going to need to pick up that drink again. Yeah, um, and I, I definitely agree with what you said about when, when you stop drinking or using, that's that's when the, the problems surface. <laughs> you know, it's like I was drinking or using just to cover up the problems. And then when I stop, it's like, oh, here's here's Jimmy. You know, <laughs> it's like, um, what do I need to do to, to like address it. this? <laughs> yeah. Um, here's Jimmy. Like, right, like but, the Johnny Carson show. Here's Johnny. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> But um, as, as I was kind of doing research for this conversation, I, I stumbled across a, uh, a, there's been, so I think this was in the year 2000, where there was a meta-analysis of like 27 peer-reviewed studies with close to 11,000 participants that show the effectiveness of 12-step programs. And I thought that was pretty cool because yep. I think in today's society, I I don't know what it is, but I have some speculation about what it is, but it, it, it seems like a lot of the times the, the whole 12 step thing is, is frowned upon a little bit and people are, I agree. you know, wanting more like scientific stuff. I was watching a, so there was a guy, some journalist who got in trouble for doing something and he was making an apology video. And at the end he said, and I'm going to start going to AA and everyone in the comments just tore him up. Like, why would you do that? AA, it's just a cult, you know? And it's like, it kind of blows my mind to see yeah. it ex 
to, to see that because I, I know the effectiveness of it, but but a lot of people don't. Um, yeah. Well, let's let me wrap up with you about that for a while because I, I've got a lot to say about it. You know, you know, you're right. See, what happened in psychology? Psychology in the beginning was so um, integrated with philosophy and spirituality and theology. And as science started moving more and more towards an empirical basis, right, psychology wanted to become more of a hard science. And so it really separated itself out from philosophy, from theology, and any of those softer, right, sciences, let's call them, and really said, we're going to base psychology on an empiricism. So we're going to do studies and we're going to have what they call evidence-based practice, right? If there's a study that proves that this is what works, then we're going to do that. Well, that went on for a long time in the field, and we really did become very different than philosophers now, right? So we're now basing our approach on all of this evidence-based practice. Well, there one practitioner I know, um, Dr. Scott Miller, and there are several others to it, I can't remember their names right now, but they came along and they brought up the point that, you know what, I think we're being a little too skewed in our approach to this stuff because there's also a thing called practice-based evidence. Medicine didn't start with these controlled studies. It started through observation and through doing something and watching the effect that it has. So you know what I say to people all the time, and by the way, it's true. There's a lot of now evidence that AA works. In fact, Hazelton published a book a number of years ago that says it works if you work it. And the author of it, I think he's a, either a Harvard psychiatrist or psychologist or Stanford. He goes through all these studies that you're talking about, including the meta-analysis, and he shows that there's plenty of evidence that shows it works. But what happened, I think, in the psychology profession because God was mentioned, it alienated so many people right. because they think that it's in a religious program and that you have to believe in a Christian God in order to be a member of this group. And see, so to me, I'm with you. There's a lot of ignorance out there about what AA really is. You know, one of the things I am proud of in my career, Jimmy, is that I've got a video on that, and if people have come to some of my talks before, I go through the 12 steps, and I show how every one of the steps are rooted in good, solid psychotherapy. And that, that the 12 steps, when you practice them, they follow the same arc as good psychotherapy follows. So Bill Wilson said it. If you practice the, the 12 steps, the principles of the 12 steps in your daily lives— that you and those people around you are going to find emotional sobriety. So he even talked about that the whole purpose of the work in the steps is emotional sobriety, right? First physical sobriety, then emotional sobriety. Um, we're doing a thing on Thursday nights that I wanted to mention here in your show too. Every Thursday, you know, when COVID hit, I decided I've got to give something back you know, because there's a lot of meetings shutting down and we need to bring more stuff to the community through Zoom. 
And so every Thursday, I started a free workshop on emotional sobriety. And we get anywhere from 160 to 200 people every Thursday night from all over the world coming to hear about emotional sobriety. I'm joined with, with uh, th- three of my colleagues, Tom Rutledge, Roger Andes, and Herb Kagan. Right now, we're going through the 12 steps, and we're talking about how the hell 12 steps help us develop an authentic self-esteem, which relates to emotional sobriety. I will send you the link of those so that you can put it in your notes, you know, when sure. you go ahead and publish this. And, and we've video archived all the programs. So there's about 80 videos on a YouTube channel that people can go back and listen to all these things. And the first show we have, I think we've had over 10,000 views. So it's become quite popular, Jimmy. Um, and, and, and unfortunate, you know, I hope that I'm helping heal the split a little bit between between psychology and the 12-step community because it's it's really unfortunate. There's a lot of great stuff that psych, psychology has to offer people in recovery, like positive psychology. You know, all the stuff that, that that's coming out of that approach, um, Dr. Martin Seligman's approach, you know, at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, it's brilliant. It fits very well into our recovery programs. Um, and vice versa. I think there's many things that happen in our 12-step community that, that, that psychotherapists could learn and benefit from. In fact, the importance of having a community. You know, and people supporting, you know, you and your, and your journey in recovery. Yeah. I, so it's a great observation that you made, Jimmy. Yeah, that's... When I asked the question about, you know, is there a one-size-fits-all best approach... One of, one of the things that always comes to mind for me when I think about that is <clears throat> just how important it is to have other people around you that are trying to do the same thing you are doing. And I think yeah. uh, that's why I, uh, 12 step, it, 12, going to 12 step meetings makes that pretty easy. <laughs> you know, um, I feel like yeah, it, it, it can be a little more difficult. To, exactly. Yeah. But an, another thing that I think people have, a problem with and I know I did initially so the first few times I tried to get cleaned up that when I heard the word disease it would it would frustrate me because I would think yeah I'm responsible for this I don't I don't want to blame this on something else and I thought that by calling it a, a disease yeah. it was it was taking the responsibility away from me and blaming it on something else but that's not at all yeah. what it is well, you know the way I well, see look it now at, is, you just hit on another thing yeah Go, go ahead. Finish. Oh, no. I was just going to say the way I see it now is uh, the disease is just the way I think. Uh, I think differently because I have a, the disease of addiction. And whether that was – whether I was born with that or if it was something that was developed because of my drug use, like, I don't know. But I do know that, you know, I do have a prone to very obsessive thinking, compulsive behavior, self-centered behavior. But, um, but yeah, I'd love to, love to hear you talk about, you know, how you think of the disease of addiction. Well, it's it's such a good question because that's another reason why many professionals, you know, criticized Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, saying that you have a disease is a cop-out. You're not taking personal responsibility for it. What I say to them is when you sit down and look at what a person has to do and all the suggestions that are made with the 12 steps, a person ends up taking more responsibility for their life than they've ever taken before. 
when they work the program. So this idea that it's somehow a cop-out and that it's encouraging an abdication of responsibility rather than embracing responsibility is, is, is a misnomer. It's mistaken. Now, I think of disease as dis-ease. We're uncomfortable. We don't know how to be okay in this world. So I don't think it is as a problem. Now, look, there's a lot of research out that says, my God, our brains are different than a normal person's brain. You know, why is it that one person can drink and not lose control and we lose control or use drugs and not lose control and we lose control? There's some pretty hard evidence that there are some things going on in our brain that doesn't go on in other people's brains. So you can look at it from that point of view, you know, is that we have a, a you know, I like... I like the original analogy that we have an allergy of the body. We react different to alcohol than other people react. Just like some people have an allergy to strawberries. They react different to eating strawberries than I do. They break out in hives. I break out in smiles, right, kind of a thing. (laughs) It's a very different experience. From that point of view, I can say, yeah, I have a disease. I can see physiologically I seem to be different than my fellows. But I also can think of it as a disease. I've never known how to be comfortable in this world. And when I drank or used, I had a momentary experience of being okay. So that's how I, how I approach that thing. But that, this idea that we abdicate responsibility in a 12-step community is, is nonsense. It's all about, and that's one of the things that Gestalt Therapy aligns so well with, with the recovery you know, Fritz Perls, which was the founder of Gestalt Therapy, along with his wife, Laura Perls, it was all about taking personal responsibility. But they broke it down. They said response, R-E-S-P-O-N-S-E, and ability, A-B-I-L-I-T-Y, our ability to respond rather than react. And that they made a big difference in, in that. Our ability to sit back and to respond so that we're taking care of ourselves, that we're acting on our behalf rather than, you know, subtracting from ourselves and being toxic. Yeah. There's another thing that I think a lot of people have a problem with, and I've heard this a few times, the fact that in 12-step meetings, people continue to refer to themselves as an addict or an alcoholic even after they have gotten clean and sober. And when I hear people say that, I'm just thinking they just don't understand like how, how that word is used. It's not like I'm not using it in a derogatory way. I'm using it in a way to remind myself that I cannot go use just one. I am for whatever reason, I'm, it's going to be different for me. You know, I'm gonna, I'm one is too many. A thousand is ever enough. I'm, I'm going to, um, it's not going to be good. And do you, do you think that that's another thing that people have, have you seen that before as well? I, that's the other criticism. That's right. Is that why are you labeling yourself? That's the big thing. Why do you need to label yourself? And I, and I agree with you. See, I, I think the misnomer is, is if when I label myself as an alcoholic or an addict, that's not all of who I am. If it was all of who I am, recovery wouldn't be possible. You know, if there wasn't another part of me that wasn't healthy, that didn't want to become what I can be, then no matter what happened, we couldn't help people get well. 
So what what happens is is yes, that part of of me took over at one point and was running my life like I think it did yours, Jimmy. You know, it turns you into a person that you're not, that you weren't. You know, I I totally compromised all my personal values, my beliefs, and and now everything I did was in service of my addict self. You know, what I say is, is that we have to develop that part of our personality to interact with the world because our, our, our personality is the interface with reality, right? So who you are and how you make contact with your environment is going to be how you get your needs met. So if I've got alcoholism, I need to have an alcoholic self that's going to interact with my environment in a way to make sure I keep getting my alcohol. I have to gaslight people, I have to be manipulative, I have to lie very well, you know, and look, half measures avail us nothing. You were not a half-assed addict, I'm sure. You weren't a half-assed alcoholic. Neither was I. I was the very best alcoholic addict that I could be because that force is inside of us that grows us to be what we can be. Now, the thing is, it's like miracle growth. You put it on addiction, it'll grow the shit out of addiction, (laughs) We're trying to put it on a healthy self now, on our recovery self. And we see, look at what's happened in your life, man. You're a miracle. What's happened in my life? I'm a miracle. I mean, that's because this force that's inside of us, this growth force that takes an acorn and turns it into an oak tree, you know, that force, that's inside you and me. And when that is connected to the right thing, stand by, brother. (laughs) Miracles happen. Yeah, absolutely. There's another um, question that could be a little controversial that I wanted to ask you. Um, so in 2012, I went to treatment and I decided at that time that the best option for me was to take Suboxone. And I was mm-hmm. on I was on Suboxone for about two years. And what you were just explaining, like um, the acorn when it's connected to the right thing, During that two-year period, I was able to hold down a job. I got my own place for the first time, and it it looked like things were going going well for the first time in my life. But I didn't have that connection like I do now. And I'm curious if you think that – and so for for me, it was – there's a very good chance that it could have saved my life at the time. For all I know, it could have been what I needed at the time. Um, That's right. but I'm just curious, do you think that, you know, MAT, methadone, Suboxone, do you think they're effective treatment options? I, I think they can be an effective stepping stone and can help a person realize there's another possibility. And look, if the best a person can do is stay on that the rest of their life and avoid all of the harm and heartaches that are caused by their addiction, fine. What I've seen happen with a lot of addicts, though, is that they use the Suboxone, they stop using it for weekends, they go out and relapse, so they play games with it. Their addicts, excuse me, their addict self is still running the show, right? It's still taking advantage of using it, and this is what, what we say is that bugs eat DDT, right? So the addict self can adapt and can now learn to manipulate medically assisted therapy. 
And what I've experienced is that most medical doctors, even though they've been trained in how to initiate suboxone treatment, right, to wait until a person's well into their withdrawals before they give the suboxone because it knocks off all of the, you know, the, the molecules, the, the, um, off of the mu receptor sites, right, all of the heroin, the opiate molecules and replaces them. And you can throw somebody in a real bad detox if you give them the suboxone too early in withdrawal, right? Um, even as though they're trained in all that stuff, they're not trained well in terms of monitoring, hey, who's running the show? Is it your addict self or your recovery self right now? Are you going to meetings? Are you going to therapy? It used to be that they required that before any doctor could give Suboxone. There had to be a whole counseling service wrapped around it. My experience has been not a lot of doctors hold clients to that level of care. And that's unfortunate because I think our, if, if you're a real addict, you've got a way to manipulate that whole system and not to your advantage, but to your disadvantage. Yes. Yeah. And what, what you were talking about, the administering it too early, I've, I've had that experience as well. And it was, you know, one of the worst experiences I've, I've ever had. Oh my God, man, it throws you into a medical crisis big time. But see, the other thing I would say to this is that what happened to you, see, I think you got a bit of a taste of what was possible. And so then what woke up inside of you is I want to take the next step. And the way that it happened in your life is is a therapeutic way. And there and that's the part that I'm excited about seeing people do. If you do it for the right reason, it can be incredibly helpful. Yeah. Okay, let's talk a little bit about spirituality. Um, there's a few quotes from your book that I wanted to read. Um, the first one is, addiction is a medical disease with a spiritual cure. The other, the other quote is, humility is the spiritual foundation of our recovery and the only solution to the medical problem of addiction is a spiritual cure. I love that quote. And then there's one more, which is there's no mental defense against addiction. We either have a spiritual connection or we don't. And I'm just curious, like, how do you define spirituality? Well, see, I, I define spirituality as when the best of me is running the rest of me. It's a pretty practical way that I think about it. Is, is And what is the best in me? Well, the best in me is humble, by the way. You know, humility, you know, sometimes gets confused with humiliation. But humility, there's three components to it. There's a low focus on self which is an antidote to, you know, this culture of narcissism we all grow up in. You know, our whole culture is based on it's all about me, right? We have the it's all about me syndrome and everybody is, is approaching things. So, you know, when people talk about a narcissistic personality disorder, that's an extreme example of something everybody in our culture suffers from. This is a culture that promotes narcissism, that makes it all about us. We make ourselves too personally important, right? That kind of a thing. Right. So that's the first thing. So humility is a low focus on self. You know, I don't get to claim special status here in the world like I'd like to, or that my narcissism would like me to. The second one is an accurate, not an over or underestimation of our success and worth right, is to be balanced in how we look at ourselves. And the third, which I think is the most important definition, 
is the ability to admit our mistakes, to take responsibility for them, to own our gaps in knowledge, to face our limitations. So those three things put together, to me, create a person who's a spiritual person. They're open to looking at themselves. They're, they're willing to say I'm wrong when they're wrong. They know that they don't know everything, so they know they don't know. And so there's an openness and a willingness to try things on and to learn new things. But there's also a clarity of values and purpose in your life. So, so I believe that, that what recovery is really doing is it's really helping us become our true self. And so when we say alcoholism is a medical disease, what I think of recovery as is recovery as is recovering our lost true self. And I don't mean recovering your ability to be Rembrandt or a, a medical doctor. I'm talking about to be a fully functioning human being is to be able to embrace your humanity. Isn't it funny? Humility and humanity have the first three letters in it, right? The, the prefix, right? that we're talking about something that's human. Our humanity is what is going to carry the day. And I believe we are spiritual beings. There's no question about it. And so to me, when I start to respect myself at this deep level, that's when my recovery takes place. So once again, the way I say it, Jimmy, it's what's right about us that we're not paying attention to that causes the problem. As soon as I start to honor my true self, now I start to heal what's wrong with me. I start to cure my disease, and I start to find another way of being in this world. There's, there's something else I, I, I wanted to, to, to mention about, um, I guess it falls in line with spirituality. I know we've, we've talked a lot about, we've, we've mentioned a few times today, uh, perfectionism, and there's a there's a funny story I have about about your book. So, um, your book, the Twelve Stupid Things That Mess Up Recovery. I read it when I was in jail, and there was a line in that book that I really took to heart. <laughs> and the line was, "It's okay to strive to be perfect as long as you realize that you, that you will never attain it." So what happens is that quote sticks with me, and I get out of jail. And a, a year or two later, I read your next book. Um, 12 smart things to do when the booze and drugs are gone. And in that book, you mentioned that you're like, Hey, I kind of changed my stance on this sentence. Um, because if, if you think if you're striving for something, then there's like a, something implicitly telling yourself that, Hey, you will be able to attain it. So I just, I want to hear you talk about perfectionism because it's such an interesting topic to me. Well, it's, it's a curse, man. It really is. I mean, and, you know, if, if, and, and what I mean, it's a curse because once again, let's go to the self parts that I was talking about earlier. So early on in life, you know, we make a decision that I have to become someone other than I am to be okay. So we abandon our true self and we dedicate our lives to actualizing a concept of who we should be. Well, as soon as we made that decision, and that decision means different things at different ages, right? Because your consciousness changes, your cognitive development changes as you grow older. 
But when you make that decision, now the world becomes an absolute. Either I'm okay or I'm not okay. Either I'm perfect or I'm imperfect. Either I'm right or I'm wrong. Right? That's what happens in this absolutism is what grows the perfectionism. So now if I have to be this false self and to be the way I think I have to be, I must be like that and nothing else is acceptable. So when I live up to the ridiculous ideas that that grow out of that idealized self, because it's idealized, no human being can possibly be what they think they should be. It's just not going to happen because we're imperfect beings, right? But when I try to live up to that, when I get close to it, I pat myself on the back. Good for you, Alan. I call that false pride. We feel proud that we're not, that we're almost this, that we're being the false self, right? (laughs) And then when we're not that self, we hate ourselves for it. How can you be that way, Burger? You're such an idiot. Nobody's ever going to love you. You'll never make anything out of your life. You're such a failure. So I either reinforce this idea of perfectionism or I beat myself up mercilessly when I'm not that way. Well, my God, talk about a problem that that creates. So a big part of recovery for me has been is seeing that that perfectionism is linked to the false self. That's the part of me I thought I had to be to be okay. And today I have replaced that, supplanted that with the idea that I need to be who I am to be okay, not what I think I should be. And that has been unbelievably liberating, right? Is to be able to embrace my imperfection and accept myself as I am and not as I think I should be. So today, Jimmy, I can say 99.5% of the time, I live a should-free existence. I don't should on myself. I don't should on you. I don't should on other people in my life. I don't, it's not a part of my life. It's more about accepting life on life's terms, accepting myself as I am, accepting you as you are, and when I'm faced with a problem, dealing with that problem as it is, and not sitting there and objecting to it, this shouldn't be happening. Because as soon as I go into this shouldn't be happening, I become a victim. Instead of being able to now say, you know, I'm being challenged by life now, how am I going to deal with it? Right. Yeah. Something that I, something that's helped me a lot is a quote I heard. I don't remember exactly where I heard it, but it was that um, I can accept myself where I'm at, but also know that there's room to grow. So it's okay to me for me to be exactly where I'm at. But that doesn't say that just because I'm accepting myself where I'm at, that doesn't mean that I still can't grow or can't strive to be better. Exactly. It doesn't mean that I'm, that I need to, that I'm accepting status quo. It just means, see, we know today in psychology that acceptance is a prerequisite to change. You cannot change until you accept what you're doing. Until you accept where you are, there's no possibility for change. So that's well said, Jimmy. I'm glad you brought that up. That's very important for people to hear. Yeah, so there was another quote from your book that I love, um, which is, so this is this is pretty cool. When, when I was in jail reading your book, I took like three pages of notes 
and I still have those notes. And I went back through those notes oh, cool. and grabbed the quotes that I took from there to, to talk about. Um, right. So the, the, this is stuff from, um, you know, seven years ago. But um, the, the quote that I like so much is, when we are feeling bad in early stages of recovery, we are doing well. And I want to hear you talk about why it's important yeah. to feel bad in early stages of recovery. Well, see, first of all, look, the, 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 when we were out there before and when I was in the throes of, of my addiction, is, you know, it was all about not feeling uncomfortable and not feeling bad. I was driven to feel okay all the time. And, and that was part of the obsession, right? I could not, I did not want to have any pain. I, I didn't know how to tolerate it. And I thought that life was about feeling good all the time. I mean, I, that's how naive and immature, you know, I was. What I realized in recovery is, see, now, as we talked about before, if my use of alcohol and other drugs was a solution to my dilemma, now that I don't have them, I'm going to have to confront what I say is who I'm not yet. I'm going to be forced with seeing who I'm not. And that's not going to be easy to do, right? I, it's hard because I'm realizing oftentimes when I get that honest with myself, man, there's a hell of a lot of work to be done here yet. I still got a long way to go. There's a long path climbing that mountain that's ahead of me. Now, the immature part of me says, I want to start at the top of the mountain. I don't want to climb it, right? I just get right, me right. to the top. Give me a helicopter ride or something like that. Find an easier, softer way. That's the danger with medically assisted treatment, right? Is you won't have to feel any of this stuff. We'll just make you feel better. Ugh, that's not going to work for me. I need to learn how to deal with life and confront life and be able to feel better regardless of what's going on. So that's the path that I'm talking about, right? In terms of this whole thing. So in the beginning, and this is what I say, trouble doesn't mean something's wrong with your recovery. It just points out, it puts a spotlight on what you need to pay attention to and what you need to do to start growing yourself along these lines. Just like if you got knee pain, it's just, it's a signal that something's wrong in your knee, right? You got cartilage that's loose or you've got a tear or, you know, whatever it is, but the pain is a signaling device. And we need to start thinking of our pain as a signaling device, not as a characterization of our existence, <laughs> but just as telling us, hey, man, pay attention to this. You got some growing up to do in this area. Yeah, I remember when I was at a halfway house and I was my first well, my second job, when I when I got clean, I was working at, at a Hilton, and I was cleaning hotel rooms, and I would clean hotel rooms and listen to speaker tapes and um, just listen to music, and it was a pretty good time, but I remember one day I was just having a, a rough day, and I was being real hard on myself, and I called somebody, one of my friends in recovery, still a good friend of this day, who's got a lot more time than me, and he's very straightforward, very blunt, and I was telling him, you know, how I'm feeling, and he's like, you know, you only have eight months clean, like, what do you what do you expect? You know? And it's like, I remembered your quote. It's like, yeah, that's, this is not supposed to feel good. If it felt good, everybody would do it. And it, it you know, the, the numbers, the statistics wouldn't be so terrible for people trying to get their life together. So you talked about, um, your, uh, a mentor you had when you first got clean or when you first got sober earlier. And I'm curious what makes a good mentor. 
Well, so that fellow that came and spoke at that meeting, right, that I was telling you about, that I said, my God, he's got this freedom. His name is Tom, and he doesn't mind me using his last name. It's Tom McCall. And I went up to him and I says, hey, Tom, how did you achieve that kind of a, an, an attitude, right, an awareness about life? And he says, stick close and I'll show you how. So I did. At 5 o'clock every day when our workday finished on the base, I hitchhiked a ride in the early parts of, the, of my time in Hawaii to Honolulu where he lived. He had an apartment. We went to meetings together. Um, later on, I bought a little Vespa motor scooter to get over <laughs> the, the Poly Highway and stuff like that to go to meetings with him. Um, but, you know, what I picked when, when I was attracted to Tom, what made me ask him to be my sponsor is it really was true that I was attracted to who he was and how he was living his life. So the interesting thing is that was over 51 years ago. He's still my sponsor today, Jimmy. Wow. I still talk to him. He still, I still identify him as my sponsor. I still call him up. Our relationship has changed somewhat. He'll share his problems with me and I'll share mine with him and we'll help each other and stuff like that. It's changed in those ways. But he still provides me guidance and help at times when I don't know what the hell to do. So I really go back to this thing. Pick somebody who has something that you want to develop in your life. And I picked him because he was free, because he was incredibly honest. He pulled my covers. He wasn't afraid to tell me I was full of shit when I needed to be told I was full of shit. And he still does so today. I respected him, and that's the other thing. It's somebody that you respect and is done the work. The thing I love about Tom is he has been in the trenches in his own recovery. Um, he has done the work. So I call him my enlightened witness. He's enlightened. So make sure you pick someone who has done the work, right? And oftentimes for me, Yes, they've worked the steps, and that's great in the program. But it means that, that using also resources outside the program. My psychotherapy, I've been in a patient for over 10 years in my recovery. A fifth of the time I've been in recovery, I've been in psychotherapy. I'm in psychotherapy today. It's been very helpful the last couple years. Um, you know, especially facing getting older. I'm 71 years old now. And some of those things, my physical, you know, health has changed in some ways and stuff and confronting what that means and all these other issues. The therapy has been incredibly valuable for me. So that's what I would suggest. Pick someone who's got something you want that's done the work that is an enlightened witness for you. Another question about service work. So a lot of times you'll hear kind of a dichotomy between people. Some people say, you know, I, I, I do this for me. And then you'll hear other people say, I do this to help others. And how do you find that balance between service to self and service to others? Well, that's a good point. I mean, you know, early on I was told, you've got to give it away if you're going to keep it. And that made some sense, but you know what makes even more sense is there's a part of me that's always wanted to be of value, is to make a contribution to this world in a, in a meaningful way. 
And I didn't know how to do that before. So I would lie about my accomplishments and things like that. Today, I don't need to do that anymore. So, you know, even though it may be for us and what we're doing, it's, it can also be in the service for others. See, what I, what I say, Jimmy, and there's a lot of wisdom in this, and, and doc, I heard Dr. Murray Bowen describe it this way. He says, a mature person is a person that can act for themselves without being selfish and can act for others without being selfless. That's deep. <laughs> can act for self without being selfish can act for others without being selfless. Well, if those are your guardrails, see, in the middle of that, that means I'll be of service, but I'll be getting something out of it, but it's not selfishness. I'm still serving somebody else. It's, it's not selfless. I don't do it for them. I make a choice to do it, so I never become a victim of doing it. I do it because I want to do it but I give myself freely to it. So the spirit here is that I can do it with an open hand. I don't do it with the expectation that I'm going to get something out of it. When I do it, I get what I'm going to get out of it. It's the doing it that's the payoff, not the result. And I think that's the important thing to keep in mind. When I started that Thursday night meeting through the whole thing, I've really enjoyed being of service in that meeting. And creating something that's so meaningful for so many people and many people that would not be able to afford coming to psychotherapy with me or someone else, you know, of, of my credentials. And they're getting some quality stuff. You'll see when you get exposed to some of the, the talks and the videos and stuff like that. It's an incredible gift to the community. And I'm, I'm very happy for that. Yeah, I think the way you explain it lines up with the way I think about it, too, is like I'm doing it for myself so I can be of service to others. Because if I'm not taking care of myself, then how am I going to be able to be there for others? Well, I got <laughs> no. to give to others, right? If That's right. <laughs> right. It's like there's nothing to give. Right. So another quote from your book. Um, when we use independence to deal with emotional dependency, we are being selfish. It is not independence grounded in individuality. It is a reaction to the pull of our emotional dependency. And when I read this quote, I think about isolation versus solitude. Um, and I want to hear you talk about, you know, isolation and solitude and how those things are different. Yeah. No, it's, it's, you pulled out some great quotes, Jimmy. Um, so, one of the things that happens, see that there's two forces that we're balancing in our life. And that's the togetherness, the desire that we have to be connected to, to be a part of, to join for union. And also there's a part of us that wants to be our own person. And that's the other side of that desire or force is separateness. Right? I want to I wanna march to my own beat. You know, I want to honor myself, right? That kind of thing. We can describe them as a we force and an I force. The we is the togetherness part. The I is the individuality. Unfortunately, you have to be very mature. And you have to 
do a lot of work on yourself to be able to balance those two desires. To be able to join and connect with another human being and keep your individuality is the greatest challenge of our, of our lives. Dr. Um, Eric Fromm described mature, Dr. Eric Fromm described mature love as union with the preservation of integrity. He could as well said union with the preservation of individuality. Another way we talk about it is learning to cooperate with integrity, that you cooperate because you want to, not because you feel like you have to, right? It's those kinds of things. So, you know, all of that is to say that if I don't know how to do that, then my I may claim independence is a way of being separate. But that means I don't need you. And see, that's not true. Because if I'm honoring all of me, there's a part of me that wants to be together and a part of me that wants to be myself. So mm. what we're talking about here is how to be aware of both sides that are important to you, not just one or the other. Not just go ahead and get lost in the connection and forget about yourself or forget about the connection and focus on yourself. And that's what people do, is they fall out of one side of the bed or the other, and they get lost. They get lost big time in the situation. So, um, you know, those are some reflections on it. You, look, my new book, 12 Essential Insights, really addresses this stuff better than anything I've written up to this point in time. So I just wanted to share that, that and, you know, send me your address and I'll make sure you get a signed copy for having me on the show. Awesome. Will do. And I will definitely read that book. I've read, I think, three of your books, but I have not read that one yet. So I'll definitely check it out. But yep. that what, what you were just explaining, uh, I, I have a lot of work to do in that area. I'm very, um, we all I find myself, I, yeah, I find myself very leaning much more toward the individual side and um yeah it, yeah and look sometimes i do that. that because i don't want to get lost in a relationship right i don't want to get lost and but look at some point in time and this is what somebody tells you well i'm doing a lot of work on myself so i don't get lost in a relationship I say, okay good fine do that but you know you're going to find out that once you get in a relationship you're going to still get lost probably and i said that's okay <laughs> just like in recovery Trouble doesn't mean something's wrong. When that happens in a relationship, it's just important to become aware of it and then get to work on learning how to hold on to yourself better, which is really what emotional sobriety is about. When you get to the bottom line, it's learning how to, have, to be in a healthy relationship and to be healthy in a relationship. So it's two sides of the coin, how to be in a healthy relationship and to be healthy in a relationship. That's what we're really looking for. Yeah, and that lines up really well with this next question I have for you. So getting getting close to the end of the questions, but this one's about relationships. This quote is from your website, and it's a little longer. So it's, Dr. Kempler taught me that we need a person in our lives to grind against. Moreover, conflict is necessary. It helps us take the next step in our personal development. In fact, I believe that we choose a partner based on the unconscious wisdom that this partner will cause us trouble so we can grind. Therefore, when you're having a problem in your relationship, it doesn't mean something is wrong. On the contrary, it means something is right. 
This is what I call therapeutic trouble because it provides an opportunity to grow and become a better person and a better partner. And my question about that is, if troubling relationships are good, how do we know when a relationship is not going good? Well, I, I think it, the question might be better said, how do I know when it's best to throw in the towel because I don't know how to grow from the experience? See, it, it's here. here's the thing, Jimmy. I can show it to you in treatment that this happens a lot. So let's say... Susie's going to a treatment program and she relapses and the staff brings her in and, and confronts her. Maybe it's a second relapse or maybe third. She's in a sober living. They say, well, look at, obviously you don't want to get well, so we're discharging you. So they blame Susie for not wanting for the relapse that she doesn't want to get well. Well, think of the difference that if Instead of the staff putting it on Susie and making her feel bad about herself, if the staff said, look, Susie, you obviously have a desire to get some help. And you haven't been able to honor that desire and to be able to use that to establish a strong foundation in your recovery. And we've failed to be able to help you do that. And that's not your fault. That's ours. We just don't know how to best be with you to bring this out and put these two things together. So let's see if we can figure out where you might better get some help. Wow, what a difference, right? In terms of the staff owning that they could not do it and that it's not Susie's fault, it just didn't happen, right? And that if she might be with someone else, they might be able to bring something else. Well, it's the same with me. There, there's t Today, I can show up in a relationship a lot better than I could show up 50 years ago. You know, now, that person that I was with 50 years ago didn't change, but I've changed a lot. So if I can't find a way to now be able to use the trouble to grow myself, it might mean that I need to walk away and, and to do some work outside of that to figure out how to unpack it and grow myself more and mature myself more. So it just means it's, it's, it's an emerging opportunity that I couldn't take advantage of. I don't want to fault the other person. I just want to take responsibility. I may not be ready for that yet. Good analogy is, is I'm a tennis player. I can hit a forehand a lot different today than I could when I first started, right? That forehand hasn't, I mean, it's still on the forehand side of my body, but my skill set has improved a lot. And I can hit a better ball today because of my growth and my, and my progress as an athlete. So that's the same thing that's true in a relationship. Coming into the program and being new, I may not have the capacity developed yet. But if I stick around and keep growing myself, I'm going to be able to learn how to do this. Now, we got to get rid of a lot of nonsense in our head that's about blaming. Who's to blame for the trouble, right? Is if we go away from blaming and we think about taking responsibility. My, my, my good friend, Dr. John Amodeo, said, when you fuse taking responsibility with blame, then all you do is create shame or defensiveness responsibility empowers people, blame diminishes them. 
And so what we want to promote here is to take responsibility in any circumstance that you're at, that you're encountering, that you're that you have, instead of thinking about who's to blame, right? So if I do that, I might just say that look, I just can't figure this one out, and you know, hopefully at some point I'll be able to figure it out better. Not that you're an idiot. It's I don't know how to relate to you in the way that I need to relate to you to feel okay about things, and I need to figure that out. Yeah. That, so I, mean, I that... believe that we walk away sometimes and we have, you know, but, but we don't blame anybody for it. We just walk away. That is a, comp- yeah, that's a, a very different way of, of thinking about um, moving on in, in whatever regard. And I, I, I like that. It's a, it's a, it's a good reframe. Yeah. You know, there, there's a great, there's a great, um, audio program I did with Zoe Williams. I, I respect Zoe so much. So, you know, Zoe's written several books on relationship. He's a talk show personality, um, good friend of mine. And I respect him a lot. But we did a thing called Love Matters Revealed. And, um, and I'll tell you, it's a great program. It's two audio CDs. You can purchase it on my website. I think they're also downloadable anybody that wants some good information on relationship and Zoe has a great thing that he talks about and it's one of our tracks on that cd it's called uh, the relationship dismount he calls it how to get out of the relationship and stick the landing it, it, to me it's a great analogy isn't it the relationship dismount you know and he's using a gymnastic you know metaphor how to get out of a relationship and stick the landing and we talk about a lot of these things in it that you're raising right now. Okay. I'll, I'll definitely check that out and I'll throw it in the show notes as well. So a question Great. that I'm probably going to ask everybody because I love to read is what is one of your favorite books and why is it your favorite? Well, that, so I'll, I'll, um, on, on just the entertainment side, I'm a big Tom Clancy fan. And um, so I love reading a lot of Tom Clancy's stuff with uh, Jack Ryan and Jack Ryan Jr. and stuff like that and that, all that stuff he's done. So I, I also like Harold Coyle in that regard. And the Mitch Rapp series um, is also a great series. So that's on the entertainment side. On a personal side, um, you know, if you said, all right, you've got, let's say, a foot on your bookshelf. What are the books that you'd really put on that foot? I'd put the 12 and 12 in there. I just think there's so much wisdom that Bill has captured in there. And I'd also put the book called The Language of the Heart, which is capturing a lot of Bill Wilson's talks that have been transcribed. A lot of great information in that. I put Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, on that shelf. I think that that's incredible. I'd put Ernie Larson's book, Stage 2 Recovery. I'd put my new book, 12 Essential Insights for Emotional Sobriety, on there. I'd put my mentor, Dr. Kempler's little thin book called Principles of Gestalt Family Therapy. I think that that's an incredible book and there's a lot of wisdom in it. Um, What else might I put on that shelf? Um, I'd put Nathaniel Brandon's book, The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. And I'm probably over my foot space now. I put People Making In by Virginia Satir. 
I think that book is brilliant. So that would be my collection, I think, in terms of books at this point in time. Well, I am very excited to check out some of those books now. So that'll definitely be something I'll be doing in the near future. So cool. do you have any plans, any immediate plans for the future? Like what do, what do we expect next? Well, what I'm working on now is um, my, my first book out on relationship was called Love Secrets Revealed. And um, I'm taking that book, it's out of print now, and I'm redoing it, and it's going to be called Room Enough for Two, Emotional Sobriety and, um, and Relationships. And so that's in the works right now, and I hope that's going to be out in the next six months. I'm going to continue to do my you know, Thursday night meeting. Right now we're doing the steps and self-esteem. I just love that. And, you know, I sure hope you can come and join us sometime, Jimmy. It'd be great to I'll have check you it out for sure. as part of that community. Um, I'm going to be um, doing some workshops on emotional sobriety. One's coming up um, April 1st or 2nd and 3rd in St. Louis, Missouri. I'll be uh, with my good friend Herb Kagan. We're doing a two-day event. At the um, beginning of June, I will be in Ireland, in Dublin, for two days. On I think it's June 2nd and 3rd, a Saturday and Sunday in Dublin. Um, so there will be other workshops. I'll be doing a couple workshops here out of my home. And in September of this year, I'm crossing my fingers, we hope to have an emotional sobriety retreat here at my home. I live on four acres of land and I'm going to try to get a permit for people to, for about 40 tents to get set up in my backyard. We're going to have a stage. We're going to have music, barbecue. We're going to start on Friday night and go through Sunday and have some great talks on emotional sobriety, some wonderful music and people sharing. So, and some great food. So crossing my fingers, that'll be in mid-September. And as that stuff starts to unfold, I'll let you know. And Maybe you can come out and, and share your experience and, and on the stage on, on that weekend too, Jimmy. That would be really cool. I would love to meet you in person. Um, and that I don't that yeah, sounds awesome. You got a, you got a lot of fun stuff coming up. Got a lot of fun stuff coming up and uh, and I'm gonna you know I'm still playing tennis and I'm started to I'm doing some mitt work now, some boxing. I I was a boxer when I was a younger man, but I'm trying to take my getting in shape physically a lot more serious now that I'm getting older. I started having hypertension at one point and and since I've been working out and I lost about 15 pounds, my my blood pressure's dropped tremendously, so I'm trying to take care of myself better too. Very cool. So, do you want to tell everybody you've you've mentioned well, a few you. times what'd you say? No, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to um, say, do you want to tell everybody where they can find you? You've mentioned your website, your, your socials, all yep. that stuff. Yeah. So, so you can uh, come on. My website's very easy. If you just use my initials, A-B and then Ph.D. So www.abphd.com. You can come and see, learn about my practice, learn about some of these other things that are happening. Also, if you go to 4D phd it's a website it's the publisher that published my new book there's an emotional sobriety study group that happens once a month it's at twelve dollars and 99 cents to be a part of that group it's a wonderful group 
Um, you have access to all of my DVDs, all of my personal recordings in that study group, as well as Herb Kagan's. And a lot of people are getting, I think we got almost 150 members now. So come and join us in that. I'll send Jimmy the information about the Thursday night at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. We do the Emotional Sobriety Workshop every week. So come and join us. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you so much for coming out today. Well, thank you, Jimmy, and thanks for having me on your show. And, and all the, I wish you all the success on this, man. Awesome. Thanks so much.